Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Imanwar podcast. Salim here, and I'm joined today by uh, two um, two guests, not just one, but two guests today. Uh, very long overdue guests. Uh, first, I have uh, Shad Imam. Um, our hardcore listeners will remember that he was one of the very, very first guests on the podcast. I don't know if you know that, Shad, but it was like episode four. Wow, man, I'm sorry to hear so. that. <laughs> it's not like it's nice to so meet you. So you're back. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's good to have you back. And we're also joined by uh, Professor Yunus Mirza, who is a visiting researcher at Georgetown University, a professor in Islam. And um, Yunus, for, uh, you haven't been on the podcast yet, but he, uh, you know, just to let the listeners, he's sort of like been our podcast whisperer. So he's been like, <laughs> he's been telling us like, you know, certain things like, like about guests and stuff like that. So, so there's a few like really good episodes we've had that a lot of that is attributed to Eunice's whispering of like, yeah, get this person on. So welcome on the, on the show, well, you know, long overdue, but we're glad to have you on. Yeah. Assalamualaikum. Thanks so much. It's an honor. And especially to be here with uh, Salim, who I'm an avid follower on Twitter and, <laughs> and, you know, Shad, uh, who's like older brother to me. So thanks so much. Yeah, Shad doesn't know what Twitter is. We're just <laughs> yeah. Right? That's how old I am. When you talk about older brother, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so Yunus uh, has recently written a book uh, called "The Bible and the Quran: Biblical Figures in the Islamic Tradition," and we hope to get into some of that uh, today uh, on the show. Uh, but we'd be remiss to first talk about that. You know, we're recording this podcast uh, during a very blessed time of the year, um, the, uh, the 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 first ten of the days of the Hijjah, which um, are considered the the, uh, the most holy days after the last. 10 nights of Ramadan and uh, obviously you know we see a lot of our see a lot of our friends and family going to Hajj who are probably there right now um and I know you uh Shad have been on Hajj and um you actually I know that because you wrote an article on, uh, on uh Imanwire it was called like the the, the best lesson I learned on Hajj yeah, so uh, people can check that out on Imanwire and Yunus you've been to Hajj too right yeah I went there last year so well, mashallah so you've been there like more recently than then so this is the first time you've you're experiencing the month days of Dhuhijjah after the after century the Hajj, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So I mean, like you know, you I've been Hajj as well, alhamdulillah. So you know, are there any uh, like when we get into these days of Hijjah and you see people going for Hajj, or any like emotions that come to you, or things that like you think about, or lessons that you learned, or certain experiences that you really like reflect on during these days? You know, for me, I'll, I guess I'll start off because uh, now my first Hajj, alhamdulillah, was um, over ten years ago, and. Uh, now every every time I hear and see people hear about them going, um, they're always that there's always that email or that what's that message you get about, you know, if you if you have duas, please right. send them with me. And and it just it makes me really reflect on the fact that I probably need to spend more time making dua. Um, the, the moment that always comes back to me from Hajj is really that those four or five hours that you have on Arafah, mm-hmm. where there's literally, you could be in a tent with, with thousands of people, but you really feel alone as if it's just you and Allah. And, you know, it, it's sad to me, th- just thinking about my own life, how I don't do that more often. I don't take that time out more often where it's just me and Allah making me sincerely making dua, almost as if, you know, 
either to relive Arafa or to try and right. take some of the Baraka from there. So that's the one thing I always, every time I see these emails come out and these messages, I get excited um, and also overwhelmed by the feeling of, you know what, I need, that's something I, I shouldn't have to wait for an Arafa to do that. Even though I've, I've been able to do that, alhamdulillah, at Arafa, it's really something that um, I should be inculcating more into my own life, making du'as. So yeah, and mashallah Shah talking about the Arafah for me was the the moment right after that when I was in Muzdarifa mm -hmm. and sleeping under the night sky and then kind of seeing this controlled chaos. You see like people, <laughs> you know, not knowing necessarily what, what's going on or where to go, but at the same time having this resolute intention of that we're here for Hajj. And then waking up in, in the morning and we had this issue where the buses weren't coming. So we people were lining up, kind of waiting, and we just said, "Hey, you know, a group of us was like, let's go ahead and and walk. You know, we, the Jamarat is not too far away." So uh, we left right after Fajr and started walking, and then you start marching, and then the memories I have of just beginning to be part of that waves of people, right. and you realize that that moment for me was how many people are here from all over the world, people holding up signs from you know Canada to Africa, uh, different groups. Uh, together, just marching, you know, saying the Bayk Allah and and finally reaching the Jamarat and uh, stoning it and feeling that sense of accomplishment, uh, leaving Muzdalifah right after Fajr, uh, making that ibadah step by step, and then fulfilling that that right, that, that important pillar of Hajj. So. Yeah, you know, like when I remember when I was there, um, I, I feel the same way because at Mina was where I really got a sense of how many people were there, mm -hmm. and you know everyone was still in the haram, right? And and uh, I got separated from my father, and uh, so like you know when at that time when you exit the Jamarat, there was like just huge like just plain of just everybody's dressed, you know, everyone in the haram. You can't see anybody, you can't tell anybody. It's like just a million people or whatever. And uh, Subhanallah, I don't know how, but like this is I mean this is like a father thing, but like he found me somehow. I don't know how it happened and, and it's one thing that I think of um, a lot of when I see people going is that I don't know if you guys um, when you were there did you run into somebody that like you didn't expect to yeah it's so, amazing I know it's amazing right and everybody I have come across or nearly everyone has told me the same thing that like they come across somebody I, I came across somebody who was uh, I sort of knew peripherally in my community and he was from Qatar and he just like, and this was in the harem, and he just he just saw me like out of the corner of his eye or something, and he, and he met me. And everybody I've talked to has said the same thing. And uh, I really believe it's like the baraka of the of uh, of, of the harem because there's no way statistically that this is possible. Because yeah. it's like, you know, they talk like one in a million chance, but like everybody you talk to has has had that happen yeah, to them. That's true. And so when I think of like, you know, when people are leaving for Hajj and like they send that email, but one of the things they also send that email is they say, um, you know, forgive me for, you know, whatever I've done, whatever I've done. And uh, it always reminds me, it's like, you know, how little I ask people for forgiveness yeah. on, a, on a regular basis, not just before you go for Hajj, but like, right. or a big trip. But, and that's like that social cohesion that you see like in, in Hajj where everyone's just coming together. And I think that's part of the thing that why you connect with people that you're not expecting to there because that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is connecting, you know, you know, the hearts. And I wanted to get a little bit into, um, for, for those of us who are not on Hajj, mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, I, I feel like, you know, every year it's like the, Eid al-Adha and the Hajj comes like really like fast, you know, everybody's sort of like post Ramadan and then like it always like sneaks up on you, yeah. right? And a lot of ways we don't give the first 10 days of the Hijjah they're due. And um, for me, my biggest memory actually of of, of Hajj or, or Umrah is actually when I did it, I did an Umrah one time in Ramadan. And um, at that time, since you're fasting in, in Ihram, right? And it was like something in my mind just started like, 
this melded. The ihram is very similar to the restrictions in fasting. And something got like merged in me. So even now to this day where um, like, uh, and I, I went later on to do Umrah again at a later point of time. And I was like, wait, I can't eat. I'm in ihram, right? And then sometimes when I'm in Ramadan or fasting, I'm like, oh, no, no, I can't cut my hair, right? So it's like, but because yeah. it's that connection, that sort of similarity in the, in between fasting and, uh, and, uh, and Hajj, because, you know, you're restricting yourself in certain ways and that restriction or a subjugating is also symbolic of subjugating the nafs and that's going to free you to to know and to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so what are some of the things that you guys do or or suggest in getting ready or preparing or doing things during the, the months of the, the days of the hijjah obviously we'll get into fasting the day of arafah which is a big thing mm-hmm. uh but like we know anything that you that you think of in these days or do specifically in these days or suggest to people i mean the one thing so for me and and this is you know it I, again, I think it's because it's a similarity between, or I don't know if the similarity is the right word, but just this connection that you have between Ramadan and Dhul Hijjah. And oftentimes in our minds, the one thing that uh, I do try to do is, is just be more generous during these months. So, you know, we get those, we get a lot of requests via email or, you know, mailings and what have you for donations. And, and typically if it's not like specific times of the year, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, going with the flow with it. But um, I, I try to make sure that there's a much more heightened consciousness for myself when it comes to these first 10 days and just giving more, right? To all the plethora of causes and organizations that we have here. Um, I think there's a generally a focus on the, you know, the quote unquote needy in Ramadan. So I try to make it a habit that in Dhul-Hijjah, at least these, especially these first 10 days and really throughout the month that I'm focused on um, or organizations that are doing work outside of just relief work or outside of just like, you know, feeding the poor, but really trying to do some of the institution building that we need for our, you know, for our American Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great advice. And for me, I think for the Hajj, especially after I went to Hajj, is his idea of fasting and showing that solidarity. So before I went to Hajj, I used to fast during the Hajj and and think about the people in Arafah. But then when I actually went there and I experienced that moment, then I felt solidarity with everyone who wasn't there at that moment. Yeah. So you kind of this idea of you know feeling and solidarity and and walking in the footsteps of the righteous of you know thinking about the stories and reading them of of Hajar, and then of Ibrahim calling the people to to Hajj uh, and you know kind of in the barren desert. So for me, I think showing that solidarity with the people there who are already there and then also thinking about the stories of Hajj and, and the personalities and, and and reflecting on how we can connect with them even though we're not there at that moment. Yeah, you know, I really think I really appreciated fasting um, more um, by when that time I did Umrah during Ramadan was because you know, not everybody can go to Umrah yeah. or go for Hajj, right? And but the one thing you, anyone can do, unless you know they have some, uh, you know, some medical issue or whatever, is that you can fast. And like yeah. I, I thought of it as like, okay, when you when when Fajr time comes, it's like the miqat of the day, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're putting your ihram on, but it's the ihram of the heart yeah. that that's um, you're going to carry throughout that day while you're fasting. And it was just connecting it more, and and I, I really feel that connection as we get in Dhul-Hijjah because, um, again, like you just said, Yunus, that solidarity that you have with the, the Hajjaj who are not cutting, if you're going to offer a sacrifice, for example, if, even for the people not a Hajj, you know, like you, you don't cut your hair and things like that, things similar to um, when you're in Ihram. And, you know, then you then it comes to a point where you get to the ninth of Dhul-Hijjah, which is just in a few days. And then you have, um, you know, the Prophet said that, you know, fasting on uh, the day of Arafah is, um, you know, an expiation or forgiveness for 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 two years of sins. One, I think it's very interesting because it says in the 
Hadith Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the year before and the year uh, the coming year. And then and that same Hadith talks about the day of Ashura as well. And when I f- uh, was thinking about this, um, and maybe you guys maybe you guys know, but I'm not aware of of a generic action that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam suggested for us to do where um, there's a promise of forgiveness for something in the future. Like there's there's like things uh, you know there's obviously specific situations with companions for example like Uthman ibn Affan like at the time of Tabuk when he contributed to the campaign the Prophet told uh, made yeah. dua and told Uthman that like you will be forgiven for anything that you till the day of resurrection but that's like a specific case I don't have you heard of anything that's anything come to mind I mean any of the listeners, <laughs> listeners out there please let me know because. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know of anything where it's such a generic um, sort of a broad-based um, suggestion. It's almost like amnesty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and please, if anyone knows uh, something else like that, please let, let me know because um, this is, uh, to me, is a very unique uh, blessing that comes at this time is that by uh, by fasting on this day, you know, in the, in the proper state, we're, we're actually getting a head start for the, the coming year because this is the last month of the Islamic year, right? So it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is, is giving us this head start to, you know, all the things we've learned from Ramadan, all the things that we've continued to, to practice since Ramadan, then going to the Hijjah, and then just like the Hajjaj are like, you know, sinless, if they're, uh, you know, on the day of Arafah after completing their Hajj, we also have an opportunity to to also be forgiven for the next year even. And that to me is just, you know, it, it's um, uh, subhanAllah. And it's, I think it's just sort of sad that we don't as a community place as much emphasis, I feel, that on these days of the Hijjah as we do on, uh, you know, the last 10 nights of Ramadan. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's a really unique insight because there is a hadith. There's a hadith that talk about, you know, if you fast Ramadan, Iman and Wahtisab and then you, you know, you'll be free you know, from what you did in the past. And that example, that nice example of Hajj where you kind of shave your head right. and you're kind of a newborn and you're forgiven. But the idea that you're forgiven for sins in the future, that's, uh, that's definitely a, a unique kind of insight and a unique hadith. Uh, that's there. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's something we should reflect upon and we should emphasize more within our communities. It's just interesting that you mentioned the fasting of Ashura as well um, as that of uh, the day of Arafah. Um, I was reminded by, I think it was a lecture with Sheikh Omar Suleiman, uh, Hafizullah, where he mentions about how the hadith for, for the Hijjah actually mentions the previous year and the forthcoming mm-hmm. year. Not technically the year that you're in, right? But the hadith for um, Ashura mentions the previous year since forgiven. Well, he's like the Hijjah is at the end of one year, so you're getting re- you're getting forgiven for last year and the coming year. Ashura is in the beginning of the new year, so you're getting forgiven for the previous year, the one that the Hijjah was in. Right, right, right. So therefore, you have like three straight years of forgiveness, right? You have the previous years, the year that you're in currently, and then the, the forthcoming year. I mean, it's just, you know, my my uh, I, my kids call it the jackpot days, right? <laughs> this is a, you fast on these days, they're jackpot days, inshallah. Yeah, it's a, and it's a very like, condensed time of year because it's like, you know, you have yeah. uh, you know Ramadan and then just a few months later, the Hijjah, and then right the next month you have Ashura. Right. You know, it's and, and that's like starting up a new year and starting a new phase in your life. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, getting back into the Hajj, um, Hajj, Hajj conversation is that um, you know, like in Ramadan, it's really a celebration, a commemoration of a celebration of the Book of Allah, uh, commemorating that, and we spend a lot of time uh, um, focusing on the Quran. Whereas in in Hajj, if you and you can't go through Hajj without focusing on and 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 commemorating and celebrating the messengers of Allah. So those two means of communication. 
uh, from the divine to humanity, the messengers of Allah and the book of Allah are commemorated in these in the month of Ramadan, the Hijjah. And that leads me to, uh, you know, um, Yunus, uh, the, the prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, who, uh, you know, you've written about, and he is like the central figure of Hajj. You know, there's no, there's no um, him and his family. Uh, so, I mean, Start us off a little bit, like with you know, with um, some of your reflections about um, Ibrahim, Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam, and, and his and 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 Hajj and how we connect with him, and you know, um, introduce a little bit about your book uh, and, and why you wrote it, and and, and what, how do you think that you know ties into because you know we talk a lot about Abrahamic faith and things like that, you know, um, Judaism, Christianity. Um, so I'm sure there's also a connection with that in terms of your emphasis on Ibrahim. Okay, great. Yeah, and that's so and definitely. I think first uh, off to kind of respond to your early reflection that it's a, it's a great point that a lot of times when we think about Islam, we think about a textual tradition, we think about you know reading text, and we think about you know the Quran and the Sunnah. Uh, in particular, in Ramadan, where there's the idea of finishing the Quran, uh, but there's this beautiful aspect I think in the rituals. Whether it's salah, you know, a siyam, a fasting, and hajj of actually experiencing, so you're, you're, it's, it's not just a something you're kind of picking up a book and reading about hajj. You're commanded to actually go there and emulate the example uh, of these figures, right? So that was something uh, profound for me because you know I've written on on this topic, I've written. Uh, on Ibrahim, on Hajar alayhi salam. So mm. I actually go there for the first time to mm. Hajj experience, and yeah. experience it. Yeah. Right? It's mm. not just like an intellectual thing. Yeah, It's actually something that you feel, uh, you see, you hear. Uh, uh, in, sometimes you taste it, you know, in terms of whether the food mm. or the air. So I think that's something beautiful about the Hajj experience that we're not required as one of the pillars of our faith to just read the the Hajj stories or read the stories of Hajj or read the stories of Ibrahim, but rather to go and experience them and actually imagine yourself in their shoes. So the idea of going there and, and going between Safa and Marwa and feeling that desperation that Hajj felt, uh, the idea of maybe sacrificing your family, you know, leaving your family to go to Hajj. Uh, you talked about your dad and your relationship with your father. You know, I went with my sister. So the idea that you're going on a journey uh, with your family, and it's not just a vacation, but it's a spiritual experience. And then those people you go to Hajj with, you always have this unique, profound connection. relationship, yeah, yeah, connection that you don't have with yeah. anyone else, you know, and that stays with you the rest of your life. So, yeah, so I think one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book is because growing up, you know, as a Muslim American, I always had this interest in prophetic stories. You know, my name is Yunus. <laughs> so, uh, so I had this interest, you know, what are these prophets about? And what are the stories? What, what, what do these stories represent? How do they represent Islam? What does it mean to be a Muslim? But then as you go to kind of our schools, our workplaces, you learn about these other names, right? These other prophets, uh, you know, Jonah, which is mm -hmm. the equivalent. You hear, you learn about Abraham instead of Ibrahim, right? You know, Isaac instead of Ishaq, you know, Ishmael instead of Ismail. So it, it created this curiosity in me, like, what is the relationship? Because we live as, you know, minorities here in the United States. So how did these prophets fit in this larger kind of tradition of prophets? Uh, biblical and Islamic prophets, or you know, biblical and Quranic. So that kind of led to this journey where I kind of explored Quranic 
uh, exegesis, tafsir, and then eventually led to me meeting the co-author of the book, John Kaltner, who comes from a Christian kind of biblical studies background. And then he wrote a lot of the comparison between the Bible and the Quran. And then I came in, uh, did a lot of the editing, and then brought in a lot of the Islamic element, right? How do these figures fit in with the tafsir tradition? How do they fit in with the Qasas al-Anbiya, the stories of the Prophet's literature? So so it starts kind of on a very personal level. Like how yeah. do you, you know, try to understand yeah. yourself, your name, your place within this kind of larger society. And then it kind of led to this, this kind of intellectual exploration to the book. And then you could argue it led, led to me going to Hajj. You know, I wanted to kind of, you know, explore mm. firsthand, you know, how it's these people live yeah, and how they, how they walked in the footsteps of the righteous. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, Eunice. I, I, did you have any, um, um, you, did you, did you find anything challenging when you started looking at the biblical figures of these prophets versus what we know kind of in our Islamic tradition? Were there, were there, were there times where you were kind of struggling with, that's not that's not the Noah that we know, right? Or that's not the, you know, the the lot that we know. Like, did you have any of those kind of spiritual crises when you were going through this at all? Yeah. So that's a great question. That uh, when I when I started exploring, I started reading the Bible more, reading a lot of the biblical literature, and I was kind of like, oh yeah, exactly. That you you kind of caught it. You kind of explained that really nicely. That you're like, wait a minute, this story is not the one that I grew up with. You know, right. Is there one that's you know more authentic? Is there one that's more right? Is there uh, why is there so much detail in the Bible? Right. Well, why don't you have these names explicit in the Quran? You know, why isn't as why isn't the Quran not as much as a narrative form? or as a kind of a piece of literature. So these kind of questions emerged and that kind of led to this kind of intellectual journey. And I think it led to me better understanding the Quran, understanding the stories. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the big kind of takeaway for me was a lot of the stories are retold within the, the life and the prophetic career of the, of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So you see that a lot of these stories, this one example of the story of Yusuf, right? Mm -hmm. we know, even the Sirah literature talks about how this surah was revealed when he was in a very difficult right. time, situation, right. situation. And if you read the story of Yusuf closely, you, you can see this idea of this, this young man, right? That's expelled by his brothers. Yeah, yeah. by his brothers, right? right. From the, yeah. the tribe of Quraysh. And he migrates basically forcibly. Uh, and but eventually he's reunited yeah. uh, with his brothers, and but he re, he's reunited with them in a position of power, of strength. He's not uh, in the position of weakness anymore. And his brothers are asking him for forgiveness and testifying that he is a person of righteousness and of of taqwa and of uh, of ihsan. So you see that these stories are are retold within the sirah. Just mm. one I just yeah. just think about like cuz the, the prophet sallallahu when he came, when he was victorious he quoted uh, Prophet Yusuf. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, the in the Sirah, it talks yeah. about that. That when he goes into to Mecca, he says la alaykum Right, he mm. quotes Yusuf. Mm. He said, "There's no revenge upon you." Right, so which is which is a beautiful statement because he's looking at his the, the tribe of Christ as his brothers. Right, this is something that Yusuf says to his brothers. I'm not going to seek any revenge. So it's speaking to his brothers who who try to kill him. Yeah. Right, and it's in yeah. a similar way that yeah, that the. The brothers and the story of Yusuf tried to uh, get rid of him. You see that the Prophet Muhammad is 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 seeing himself in the in the light 
of Yusuf and using him as a model and as an example, and that the the, the Quranic uh, wisdom, right, the Quranic message is guiding the actions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, I, so that was something that was u- unique to me that to really understand the stories of the prophets and stories you find in the Quran, you have to understand the seerah, you have to understand uh, the personality and life of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, one of the things that was really interesting for me actually on that point was I remember this almost you throughout the city you see this inter- intersection between the divine and and kind of the the ethereal you know, the, the real right here in, in the world, and uh, I remember when I was studying with uh, the Sira with Imam Majid, uh, we actually came upon you know we were studying right before the Hijra and he mentioned that um, Surah Al-Safat was one of the last surahs revealed right before the Hijrah of the Prophet And Surah Al-Safat is really interesting because I know we were talking about it before the podcast. Uh, because the first 75 verses or so are all about, yeah. you know, the Day of Judgment, right? And and it's, you know, and you think to yourself, this is 13 years later after Ba'itha, after Revelation, and yet Allah is still sending Quran down telling them, hey guys, there's still a day of judgment. Like you're not, you're not, you know, just because I've been telling you about it for 13 years doesn't mean it's going to go away. Um, but really the next 75 or so verses are all, it's almost like stories of just snippets of different prophets, mm-hmm. right? So you have the prophet Nuh, salam, you have, you know, Ibrahim, you have Ishaq, you have all these different stories there. And there's not actually a full story. It's just a snippet. Right, yeah, it's, right. it's Noah and the flood. It's like vignettes of yeah, vignettes, right? Yeah, it's like Ibrahim and the fire, and yeah, and I always found that really, you know, kind of odd, right? I mean, like it, I understand in the Quran you have the story of Yusuf alayhi is all in one surah, but you know, just moving from one vignette to another very, very quickly, and and I remember studying that with him. I imagine he said, you know, this was one of the last verses or last surahs revealed before Hijra, and think about what the Prophet alayhi was going through at that time how vulnerable he must have felt that he's leaving what he's known for 53 years. And, you know, he knows the streets, the people, everything, and he's going to something completely unknown, right? And Allah is sending Quran to him, comforting him, telling him, look, we took care of Noah. We took care of Abraham. We took care of Luth. We took care of these people. And in the same way, salamun ala al-mursaleen, right? Mm-hmm. Peace be upon all of the prophets. Like, we're going to take care of you. We know you're going into this desperate situation, but we're going to take care of you. I just, you know, that kind of, you know, this intersection of just knowing, for me, it just, it really enlivened the surah when you understood the context as to when it was revealed and what, what must have been happening. So it's just, you know, it's beautiful that to think of the story of Yusuf alayhi salam, as Yunus was mentioning, through the lens of the Prophet's own journey, right? For us to think of these verses from the Quran, like in Surah Al-Safat, in, in relevance to where the Prophet was at that moment, right? And what he must have been feeling and how it's really sent as a comfort to him. Right, yeah. So finally, yeah, it's 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 that. I mean, the beautiful thing about it is like it's it's twofold. Number one, as you said, you see the love of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in comforting the Prophet so with so these stories, yeah. but also for us, um, also getting comfort of from the comfort of the Prophet yeah, so them, but also of seeing this this litany of the the uh, of the prophets being different prophets being mentioned yeah. and that like you know, the, so the weight of evidence i guess you could yeah, call it exactly. you know, the weight of it it's like this and this messenger and this messenger and this yeah. messenger and i'm sure like you know that's like that's i mean uh, i mean i think growing up for me that uh, my favorite thing was was like learning about 
I, I'm sure for a lot of people is learning about the stories of the prophets, right? Yeah, even to absolutely. even now, like when I'm reading the Quran, like when we get to like you know thing about one of the prophets, it's like oh yeah, it's like you know it's <laughs> it really gets you you know, excited. Um, and like Yusuf was uh, Yunus, excuse me, Yunus was that something that we talked about? You know, the biblical versions versus the Quranic versions, but like we also have a different understanding of of prophethood like compared to what prophet is considered in the biblical tradition to the point that even that I'm, some of my teachers even said like we shouldn't even use the word prophet because of how the connotations of of what in English and how they understand prophecy so was that something that you had to um you know deal with when you were um preparing the book yeah absolutely so that's a great point so in terms of the idea of prophet like who is a prophet and what's the definition of the prophet so so there are certain figures that we would understand in our tradition to be prophets like Adam, but may not be prophets within the biblical tradition. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole host of prophets within the Bible, which you don't find in the right. Quran. And then you find actually certain prophets in the Quran that are not find, found in the Bible. So you find that, for example, Hud, for example, or, or Salih, mm -hmm. uh, they, they're kind of the Arab prophets, right? They're people known uh, within the Arab milieu, the Arab history, cultural tradition, but not known necessarily uh, in the biblical tradition. So you had that that tension. And then the idea, uh, I think the big thing that came up was the idea of sin, right? Can can prophets sin right. or not, you know? And in the in the biblical tradition you have, you know, people like Noah for instance or uh, you know, prophets like Dawood for example or David who commit sins, right? And and, and then seek and, and not just like little sins, <laughs> yeah, like egregious, yeah. egregious, egregious, egregious you know, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And and those you know sins are are uh, are not necessarily explicitly mentioned within the Quran. They could be maybe implied or inferred, but they're not uh, as explicit. So this this debate of uh, around can prophets sin or can they rather make mistakes mm -hmm. or are they you know leaving what's preferable? Right. So, for example, in the story of Eunice, when he left his people, is he making, is he doing a sin? Right. Or is it, was it just a, simply a mistake? Or, you know, is it leaving something that was preferable? It was preferable for him to stay and preach to his people, but he decided to leave. Uh, but then he goes back mm -hmm. and he, he makes uh, amends and his people uh, believe in him and his message. So I think that was a big thing, like uh, the definitions mm -hmm. of what a prophet is. And I think it does come back down to this earlier point that we talked about, is that when you read about the prophets in the Quran, it's always connected to the prophecy of the Prophet Muhammad, right? That is, you know, his, his mission, his life, and how do these stories kind of fit within his larger uh, prophetic career. And I think if you understand that, then you can, I think, better understand what a prophet means mm -hmm. uh, within the Quran. So how do you think that, you know, in terms of, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure, Shad, you do some interfaith uh, work, you know, Eunice, obviously you're, you're, that's in your sphere. Um, you know, in terms of conversations about the prophets and conversations about the Bible versus the Quran, um, you know, how, how, does, how do those differing views of, what a prophet is, what they can or cannot do, the infallibility in the Islamic mm -hmm. tradition of the prophet versus of the prophets versus you know the the, the biblical um, examples and how they see it, you know uh, how they see prophecy and prophets. How do you how, how does that sort of come out in like these in your in your discussions with you know um, Jews, Jews and Christians in in your work? Mm -hmm. no, that's a great question. So this larger question of like Isma or you know yeah. the prophet being ma'asum or you know infallible or protected. So I think 
when we when we have those like interfaith discussions, you you realize how different or how we might have similar figures, but then how people view those figures in a different way. So where you know. Muslims, we you know, we would be more hesitant to kind of criticize the prophets or, uh, you know, point out their mistakes. Or we see where you know it was kind of shocking sometimes to go into other uh, settings where they're kind of explicitly talking about these mistakes or you know really emphasizing. Uh, at the same time, you know, I personally, you know, I learned that this this idea of of, of forgiveness is really a central element of our, our, our religious tradition, but other religious traditions as well. So I remember I had this uh, conversation with a Catholic uh, a priest who I took a class on intro to biblical literature. And I, I spoke, we talked about Jonah, talked about Eunice, and he, he really emphasized to me the idea of mistake, that he, he kind of made a sin. He really wanted <laughs> to say that. And he was explaining to me that it wasn't necessarily a negative thing, right? That it wasn't a, a, a problem that he necessarily sinned, but the idea that he wanted to emphasize is of toba. So in, in, my, in my work, I've grown to appreciate other uh, religious perspectives, other religious stances on these figures. I may not always agree, you know, hundred percent, but it's kind of, it definitely enriched my own understanding of, of, of my faith. But do you think that some of, some of that, like that interpretation that you, that, you know, he was saying, some of it has lost sort of like, I feel like, um, putting spin on, um, things that, you know, the egregious errors that, you know, are attributed. And, uh, you know, I think because the criticism would be that, you know, coming from that perspective, then what does a human being have to aspire to emulate, right? So, you know, if, if you're seeing these men of God who are doing these, you know, sins, obviously, yeah, okay, you can spin it and say like, well, they was teaching you about forgiveness and toba and things like that. But at the same time, as, as, a, as a lay person who's trying to follow in the fall in the footsteps of the prophets, I mean, the, the criticism would be that then this is not a path that's really going to um, ennoble and 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 enhance our transformation to be better people because you can always just back on and be like okay well the greatest people of, of creation did that uh, according to this uh, idea and you know okay so I'm, I'll be okay too but you know? I, I don't I don't know Salim if they actually accept accept well I should say I shouldn't say they like that but the Christians that I've spoken with oftentimes whether it's through friendship circles or through interfaith circles um, it's very interesting because. We consider prophets as an example for us, and almost by and large, all of them, right? Of course, the Prophet being Uswatun Hasana, the best of examples, right? But generally, you can look to all the different prophets' lives, and you can take something of their courage, something of their humility, something of their there's there's something there for us. I I didn't get that impression from my interfaith discussions that they that those interfaith members or those the Christians in particular took prophets at the same level when it came to example, right? Exactly, yeah. right? They, they, in fact, would oftentimes look to Jesus as the example, and not because he sinned, but because he was sinless mm -hmm. in their tradition, mm -hmm. right? And so they saw, to, to, I remember having this discussion with, with um, someone in one of our dialogues, and it was very interesting because to them, perfection is almost what's asked for. It's like, you need to live a perfect, sinless life like Jesus. Whereas in our tradition, perfection is something for Jannah. It's not mm -hmm. here in the world. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ said, you know, all of the children, right? That all of the children of Adam are sinners, but the best of those who sin are the ones who turn on, you know, constantly in repentance to Allah. And I think that there is a general sense by which Muslims will take these prophets as examples. 
knowing full well that they may have made mistakes, but those mistakes are not part of the sunnah, right? In fact, how they turned back to Allah from those mistakes, if they occurred, that's, how, that's what's instructive for us. So I think there's just a very different treatment of how Muslims see prophets right. as examples and how Christians may see them as just people who lived, but really they're insignificant when it comes to Jesus, right? Who lived a sinless life in their, in their estimation. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really uh, important point that uh, what is the model of perfection, right? So as Muslims, even if you read, you know, theological works and, and you study any text on the Aqidah, for instance, that you have a discussion about the prophets being the best of all creation, mm -hmm. right? You have the prophets and then the awliya and then, and then the siddiqeen and so forth. So... In in other traditions, it's different, right? So, for example, in Christianity, you might have this. For a lot of Catholics, it's like it's the hierarchy, right? It's not necessarily the prophets, but there is this kind of church that is is uh, forming the basis and understanding of the faith and explaining it. You might have in Christianity in general, the disciples are really emphasized, mm -hmm. as Shah mentioned, Jesus. So you have a, a different understanding. Of, of prophets, but also a different understanding of okay, who who do we look at uh, as models of perfections? And we even have those debates within our communities, mm -hmm. right. right? So, yeah. Yeah. like, is it the the salaf salih? You know, are we looking back to the early community? Are we looking to the odia? You know, or to you know the shiuch to the to the saints? Uh, so, what models of perfections uh, do we look at as a Muslim community? Is it really only the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Is it a genealogy that maybe starts with him but that continues until this time? So, those those are some rich debates within our communities. I think it's always interesting, actually. Um, you know, going talking to you know Jews and Christians about like, even even though I said earlier about like spin, I didn't necessarily mean it like in the in a bad sense, but in the sense that like it's a perspective that is very alien to our the way we have been raised yeah. uh, as Muslims and understand uh, prophecy and prophethood. But one thing I, I and I think you um, you know you can chime in here, both of you, is that one thing that I've always benefited benefit from in 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 any type of interfaith discussion is that because they have such a different perspective, they um, often give you a perspective on your own tradition that you would not have yeah, come true. come to yourself. And like, I remember like one time as a, as as a teenager, like a, sort of an interfaith type event, and you know I was just talking to some uh, someone and we we're talking about the Kaaba, and he was like, he's like, so what's inside the Kaaba? And I said, there's nothing inside the Kaaba, <laughs> you know, um, there's nothing in there. Um, uh, and then he was like, and he just like he was silent, and he was just like. That is amazing, and like I never really thought of it that way. I was like, okay, so everyone's focusing praying on towards the Kaaba, and in the middle of that space, there is nothing, right? Which is obviously there's a lot of things that we as Muslims can take from that, but that's not something that you know you necessarily would have I would have thought of yeah, unless in this. Uh, of course, Allah Subhanahu is sending me that person to, to tell me this, you know, this you know this Christian man to teach me something about my own faith, even though we may have differences in our perspectives about, you know, these these theologic issues, there's always something that I, every time I've ever been to an interfaith event, there's always something that I get that actually helps me in my own faith, probably more than more than maybe I was able to contribute to, you know, underst the understanding for, for them, but I have always benefited somehow from something that they've said. No, absolutely, yeah, and that's one of the, the benefits of of engaging uh, it, with these stories with other people of other faiths. Like, so one of the one of the challenges as we as Muslim community face is that sometimes we talk about 
we're really good at talking about religion amongst ourselves. But then when we, we actually go to some of these interfaith events, right, yeah. we can see the struggles, uh, you know, Challenge. how do we, yeah. how do we articulate this or how do we say this or, you know, what's the English pronunciation of, of, you know, Ibrahim, for instance, or, so you, we, you, you start to intellectually engage with the other and how they actually perceive their own religion and how they perceive you. And I would totally agree with you. Like one of the things personally for me was when I would read the stories, uh, for example, the story of Ibrahim and, and the sacrifice, I, w- I always grew up with knowing it was Ismail. And, mm. uh, and, and then, you know, going and inter- interacting with biblical scholars and they're like, no, it's in the Bible. It says it's Isaac, right? It says how. Mm-hmm. So, that really led to a lot of question marks for me. Like, you know, how was it that every khutbah on yeah. Eid, you know? It was <laughs> how did we just miss that? I know, yeah, it was Ismail. <laughs> but then, you know, people are saying, uh, people in Ahl Kitab, the people, Jews and Christians are saying, no, it's it's Isaac. So that led to kind of another intellectual curiosity. So it does, uh, these, these encounters, these engagements, so when you actually have discussions about scripture, about faith, they... Uh, they pose questions to you that you would never think of otherwise, that within your own religious communities, you would never think twice about, you know, why Ismail is a sacrifice versus, you know, Ishaq or, you know, what what's in the Kaaba, for instance. But with that engagement with the other, then you're like, oh, maybe maybe they have a point. Maybe they're making uh, something, they're making a point that's worth engaging. But let, let's take this example of uh, Ishaq versus uh, Ismail in terms of the, who's the son of sacrifice, just because it's relevant because Eid is going to be, Eid al-Adha is coming a few days and a lot of the, the Eid khutbas will be about, you know, about lessons from the sacrifice and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But, you know, I think, I mean, I know growing up that, you know, it was just a given that Ismail was the, the, the son of sacrifice. And I knew also that in the Bible it was, uh, uh, Isaac or Ishaq. And the way it was always painted to me or I understood it was like, oh, well, it's just this, it's like, you know, because it's what, what has, what has come down that line, right? Of, of, uh, because Ismail is the son of sacrifice and, uh, the descendant of Ismail is the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And, um, the honor is with, Ismail, the like, son of the, the, the sacrifice. Because, yeah, the son of the sacrifice. Whereas opposed to like, it was like it was almost like a, a match of like who's better, right? Like the, <laughs> it's the descendants of Ismail or the descendants of Ishaq. Um, uh, but but then like you know, I, I was surprised to learn later on that like even though it's a commonly held um, understanding, I think for most Muslims that Ismail is a son of sacrifice. And uh, um, Yunus, you can you can talk more about this, but it's not it has not been unanimous, right? Yeah. So this is a really important point that. You know, in the biblical tradition, the story of of Ibrahim, of Abraham, is it's connected to the children of Israel, their story, their legacy, their tradition. So it's really important that Isaac or Ishaq is a sacrifice mm. because the children of Israel come from that that line. So, so Muslims historically kind of developed a counter kind of covenant. Mm-hmm. You know that we, mm. you know, we come from the Ismail, right? Because the story of Ismail and Hajar. And he said, I'm going to Arabia and then founding, find, you know, finding the, the well of Zamzam and then the tribes emerging and then uh, the, um, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam eventually coming from uh, the descendants of Ismail. However, when you look at the story itself, right, in the Quran, you see that it's not really emphasized, 
that it was Ismail, right? Or it's not really emphasized that it was Ishaq, but it's really a story of submission, right? Willing submission. It's a story of Islam. It's a story of faith, of Iman, of believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's a story of Ihsan, of being good and, and righteous. But what would you say for, and just like, you know, push back a uh, for example, in that in that in sort of fat, it talks about the Ghulam Halim, right? Mm-hmm. And that was that is understood to be through the exegesis of the Quran from the Quranic commentators. That if you look in other areas, that this is definitely a, to, according to them is is means that is it is Ismail, right? Absolutely, I mean, sort of, yeah. Okay, great. That's the, so the idea of فَبَشَّرْنَاهُمْ بِغُلَامٍ Hanim, right? So what's important in that verse is the idea of Ghulam, right? So it's not mentions specifically who the ghulam is right but it's mentioned that it's a boy right but as you as you noted this idea of that he's has hen right that he's hadim that he's forbearing and and in the quran it's mentioned that ismail is that ismail is is one of the prophets who is sabirin that he's he has sabr right and so there is this correlation between kind of hadim or hen and and sabr. So a lot of the exegetes tie this that that he's not ghulam and alim because ghulam and alim refers to ishaq, mm-hmm. a, a, right. a boy who is knowledgeable. But these are these are these are in interpretation, right? Exactly I mean, right. So these are their particular interpretation. These become the dominant interpretations. And if you read the story further on, right? So even when Ibrahim talks to his son, his son, he says, "Qadi ya bunay, inni araf al manam." Right, so he says, "Yabunei." Right, he says, "My my dear son." Right, so once again, he's not explicit uh, on on who the who the child uh, is. However, it, it make it make, smile makes sense in the sense that you know he's the oldest child. You know, why would God test uh, Ibrahim with his second born child? Uh, it, it makes sense in the sense that uh, Ismail will, was the only child that had the progeny that would eventually lead uh, to the Prophet Muhammad. So the Ismail is a dominant opinion, it is an opinion that you find in early chronic commentaries, but it becomes more dominant later on, right? So it wasn't always the case. So even early chronic, chronic commentators like Tabari, for example, believed it was Ishaq, for the reason that if you look at the end of the story, right? So you go through the entire story, the, the verse 112 says, right? So the idea here is that Ishaq uh, is granted Nabuwa, right? He's granted prophecy because he passes the test, right? The mm-hmm. passes the test mm-hmm. of the sacrifice. Where other other chronic commentators say, no, there are two stories here. Two, yeah. yeah, there's first stories about Ismail, and then there's a second part. Now we're talking about Ishaq, right? So uh, differentiating between the, the two sons. You, one of the, one of the things I just love about that series of verses in Surah Tasafat is where um, you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Falamma aslama," right? That and indeed they. Both, he's using both, yeah he's using yeah. the dual form they both submitted right because it was it's not we we sometimes think of it as abraham's sacrifice but we forget that the son was also you know he was the one being sacrificed right, right? so he had to accept that this is you know if al ma'tumar right like do my father do what what you've been commanded to do um so i always i always found that very beautiful that in you know allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically calling out even linguistically that it's both of them who submitted yeah you know which is i mean which is um uh, you know, in in uh, difference with the biblical 
narrative where Ibrahim is, is basically sort of doesn't really tell the son or Isaac in the biblical narrative of what he's going to be doing. And it's just sort of like, you know, just does it and is about to do mm-hmm. it. That is the beauty of, of the Quranic narrative, especially I think for us, you know, all as a lot of us as, as parents and, and, you know, in terms of how we deal with our, um, how our children, uh, how we interact with our children. Um, because like Ibrahim, they said that it's almost as if he's, he's telling um, he's telling Ismail, like, been given this command. And it's like he's having a conversation with him before he's saying, like, we're going to do this. It's like, you know, he's like, we're going to do this now. He's like, you know, this is, this is what happened. And it's, he wants to see what Ismail is, is going to say, you know. And mm-hmm. it's, I think, a lesson for us and how how we need to have that, you know, two-way conversation with um, with our children, no matter what age they are, in terms of, you know, understanding how they feel. And and also the beauty of Ibrahim salam and being that responsible parent who has inculcated those values into Ismail where, to the point where Ismail is just, Allah will find me uh, yeah, Asian. No, that's a great reflection. And I I really love the story. I agree with both of you that in the beginning, it's really about Ibrahim because Ibrahim is saying, you know, Rabbi habli mina salihin, give me among the, the righteous. Mm-hmm. And then he's given this this boy, but then it transitions from Ibrahim to both of them, right? As Kanshad mentioned. So it starts with Ibrahim and then, you know, Ibrahim consults his his child, right? He, he, he consults what we understand to be Ismail. And I love that. I love that phrase where he's saying, I see in my dream that I'm slaughtering you. What do you think about that? You know, I always joke to my students that if my dad woke up one morning, you know, and said, Yunus, I had a dream last night where I was slaughtering you. What do you think? I would be like, you know, dad, go back to sleep, you know, have another dream, right? Or I would just run out of the, the house as quick as possible, right? This, 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 this amazing kind of dialogue, almost doing shura, right? He's consulting yeah. him. And if you look at Ibrahim's own relationship with his father, right? If you remember the other mm, verses right. where Ibrahim goes to his father, uh, and he says to him, Dad, why are you worshiping these idols and so forth? And his father doesn't respond in this kind of consulting way. He says, oh, he doesn't say, oh, what do you think? Or can you explain to me why you have this feeling? Oh. Yeah, it's he, a very harsh language, like, uh, um, unfortunately, like the, the way a lot of us are with our children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. my dad would respond, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one phrase in particular, he says, he says, like, leave me leave alone, me, yeah. you know, and talk about, you know, contemporary father is maybe that's something <laughs> we're on our watching something on the on television or on our uh, smartphones that you know get away from me i'm busy right yeah. or what you're saying doesn't make any sense but here and then you see ibrahim kind of grows up and he's a father himself and his language is very different than his own father mm. and he's consulting him he's asking his his advice what's your opinion and then i i once again Salim, i agree with you then the son saying, abati, right? If tu'mar, right? Do what you're commanded, right? Setajiduni insha Allah right? You find me by the will of God among the patient, right? What a I wish all our kids were like that, right? <laughs> Whenever we ask them like to pray or or, or you know to fast. So this is a, a unique uh, child where he's, you know, talking to his father in such a beautiful language, Ya Abati, oh my father, and then understanding that this is a commandment of God. And then the story transitioning 
from now this dialogue to what Sean mentioned, right? right? So then they both, right? So they're both the protagonists in the story, right? It's not just Ibrahim, right? right? It's, it's, it's Ibrahim and, and his son who are both submitting to the will of God. And what I love about that, that verb and, and the story is that, you know, growing up in Sunday school, we learned that Islam is like submission and we learned that Islam is about the five pillars. But sometimes we don't connect Islam to the, the stories of the prophets or yeah. to the seerah and so forth. So it's really important to understand how these how these larger con- concepts of Iman or Ahsan or Islam fit into these prophetic stories. And we see here that, you know, some people, they criticize Islam, right? So the part of the Islamophobia industry, they say, oh, Islam is about submission and following the Sharia and so forth. But here you see this kind of almost a willing, a willing surrender, right? Yeah. It's not this idea right. of just submitting to right. God's will, but they're, they're engaged in intentional and, and and willing, right? They want to do this, right? Well, it comes get, from love. Yeah, yeah f- from love. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. So, I mean, because you know, Ibn Qayyim Josiah, he makes that point. He says, "This is a story about love, mm-hmm. right? This is God, who Ibrahim loves, you know, asking him to do this action, and then Ibrahim struggling with this, right? Yeah. He doesn't just take his son and do this, right? He's he wants to consult his son, who he loves." Right, and then you have uh, the son here hearing his father ask him and telling him about him dream, and then because of his love for his father and God, he says, "Let's go ahead and and, and do this uh, together." So it is a larger uh, story about love, uh, and it's a story that where God loves Ibrahim, but doesn't necessarily require him to show him that his love doesn't actually require him to actually sacrifice the son, right? So in, in, the, in the Quranic story and in the biblical story, God does not uh, ask Ibrahim to fulfill the sacrifice, right? It's fulfilled through a, a ransom, right? Through a ram, right? It's not that he actually has to kill uh, his child and the verse in the Quran here that explicitly mentions that uh, is this idea of tasdiq right so right that you completed your vision right you know there's this call you know so there's this call to Ibrahim and says you know you have done tasdiq you have you fulfilled, you fulfilled your dream yeah. which is remarkable because he didn't slaughter his son Right, even though that was the dream, yeah. it's more about this idea that he wanted to obey God. Right, so that was a larger lesson. So the the command is not necessarily slaughtering your child as much as obeying what God wanted you to do. And that's what Hajj is, right? I mean, when mm-hmm. you think about it in isolation, if you look at all the rites and rituals of Hajj, you know, you'd almost say they don't make sense. Like, why would you do this? Why would you, you know, why would you spend, you know, time? throwing throwing stones at a stone, right? Well, a big stone now, right? But like, why would you do that? Why would you spend the night in Muzdalifa? Why would you go between Safa and Mar? Why would you do all this stuff? But the reality is we do that because we, we want to worship Allah and he's told us to do this, right? And that's why we're doing this. And he showed the Prophet how to do this, right? And I think there's a very, you know, when it, to kind of bring it back to, to what we were originally talking about around Hajj Salim, mm-hmm. it's really... That it to me is is really the culmination of of doing things for the sake of Allah, right? Because there's not you can't rationalize it. You can't say, hey, there's some rational reason to do this necessarily, right? It's just you. It literally it's an exercise in just ritual, and that ritual you do because 
you and we, we all believe Allah commanded us to do it in this way, right? And I think that there's, you know, that comes from that place of love, right? And it comes yeah. from this place of really, I want to do my utmost. And this is why every Haji I talked to, even this year, who was going there, their biggest concern was, am I going to do it right? Mm. Like, I don't want to mess it up. Why don't they want to mess it up? Because they, they really want to do it right by Allah. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful sentiment to go in there with. Um, so, you know, it just, uh, I'm always shook by the story because it, it you really see that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not just, not just did he accept the sacrifice, right? It's commemorated every year on Hajj, right? It's commemorated that whole the story. And you know, I mean, imagine makes the point actually of saying a single mother's agony running between mountains is commemorated every time you enter Mecca. Like that's what it, that's what it is. It's a single mother's agony. I mean, she had no idea what to do, right? She had no, no food, no water, no nothing. And yet we commemorate that. Right? We have it indoctrinated in us that this is the way that ritual worship goes. And we do it simply because we love Allah and we want to follow his messenger. Yeah, I mean, you know, to that point, talking about the day of Arafah, you know, for example, like Arafah, the, the root of the, that word is means to know, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and to do these all these rituals out of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to know Allah. And, and this also ties with doing the sacrifice at the, at the end of the 10 days. To be a knower of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, mm -hmm. you have to do what the people, the Arafin did yeah. Yeah. do. So obviously the prophets, we have to do what they do. We have to do also what the, the righteous people have done. Yeah. It's, it's, it is a ritual, but it's like by doing that process, there's certain things that we have to do. We may not necessarily understand it always on a rational level. But if you see the what people before us have done, they did these things and they were uh, knowers and lovers of Allah and we saw to, to what status they, they reached. So that is the path that you know you have to take to... Yeah. To, to be inshallah, to be accounted to be amongst those who are the lovers of Allah and the knowers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Before we um, give some concluding things about sacrifice, things like, I need to come back to this, this, uh, this Ishaq versus Ismail issue. Um, and <laughs> there's one Eunice here. Yeah, because you know, Eunice <laughs> is the one bringing it up. You know? So um, is it that, and, and you mentioned Eunice how that the, the, the opinion of Ismail became stronger in later generations, especially like towards the medieval period, especially, right, of this, and the, even the idea of this counter covenant, right? Isn't it strange, though, that we are focusing so much on uh, the lineage aspect of, of, of say, of Ismail when, um, for example, even when the Quran talks about uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam in, in, uh, talking about actually when he's in Mecca with, um, with, with Ismail, um, when, when they're about to build the Kaaba, and, you know, and Allah subhanahu wa says to him, you know, I'm going to make you an imam of all nations, a leader of all nations. And then Ibrahim says, you know, and what of my children? And then, and then Allah subhanahu wa says, um, not accept the, the wrongdoers. So there's, there's this understanding that lineage is a spiritual chain. It's not that it's, and, and this is also in the story of, of Nuh, like when he says like, you know, my, his son is on the mountain, right? And then he's saying that, you know, he's my, from my family. And then Allah says, no, he's not from your family because that's that spiritual lineage. Uh, whereas we now it, are sort of focused more on that, that, that bloodline. And are we taking away from the message that is very evident in the Quran and the story of Nuh and the story of uh, Ibrahim, where it is stressing the point of righteousness, stressing the point of that spiritual connection uh, and that good conduct rather than, than just blood and lineage? Yeah, no, that's a, a wonderful point. And just want to comment real, real briefly on what Shah mentioned, and I'll tie it into uh, your question, Salim. So I really like this idea of, you know, this, this journey of faith. 
right? So you see this with uh, the the story that in in uh, that they don't necessarily totally understand what's going to happen, right? They have this dream, they have this command, and there is this uncertainty, and you can almost hear it in Ibrahim's voice where he's like, you know, what do you think about this, you know? Uh, and they say, and he says, you know, I'll just do what you're commanded. And this leads kind of ties into Hajj because Hajj is almost a journey of faith, right? Why would you go, you know, in, in the blazing hot heat in the middle of Mecca, uh, go to all these places, Arafah, Mina, Muzdalifah, you know, the Jamarat, if it wasn't for faith? And there were moments last year when I went on Hajj where you you have these questions like, why am I here? This doesn't make any sense, right? And I think those are national aspects of faith and the journey of faith. When you're living your life in as a believer, uh, that there will be moments of uncertainty, there will be moments of doubt, but having a, a, this, this faith in the larger picture. And when you talk to the people that come back uh, from Hajj, they, by and large, have this really amazing experience, and they have this, they they see the wisdom of their different actions, the rights of, of certain moments they had there, where when they're in the moment, yeah. they, they were like, you know, in really hardship. It yeah. was difficult. It was trying uh, for them. And uh, to answer your question, Salim, you're right. So, you know, part of the interaction between different religions is that sometimes you start adopting, you know, the positive aspects of other religions, but also maybe things that theologically are different. And when uh, growing up, I also had that, I was taught in Sunday school and so forth that, you know, we believe it's Ismail because the Prophet Muhammad comes from Ismail. So really focusing on the lineage. So when I started to look very closely at the Quranic verses, I said, I realized, that, oh, that's not what the Quran is saying, right? The Quran is not really emphasizing lineage in the story or the story of Nuh, for example, that you you gave, or the story, you know, of uh, of Ibrahim where he's asking, or you know, of his father, right? His father was not considered to be a believer. And even in the story of the sacrifice, it ends by saying, That's we, we rewarded those who were, uh, believers, but verily they were among the believers. And as the verses continue, so we gave blessings on Ibrahim, on him and Ishaq, right? And this speaks to your point, Salim. And he, saying that from their progeny, right? And there's two interpretations here, saying from the progeny of Ibrahim and Ishaq, or from the progeny of Ismail and Ishaq. So from both their progeny are muhsin, people who are righteous, but people who are lanim, right? People who do injustice, uh, uh, and that, which is clear and evident, right? So the story is not that if you're from a certain family that you're gonna you're all right and that you're going to be saved. It doesn't matter what your progeny is or what family you come. It's about your actions, what, how you act, what you personally believe, and that you be recompensed for that on on the day of judgment. And that's uh, I think a really powerful message that you see throughout the Quran. Right, the story you gave of Nuh, for example, even the most righteous people, they are unable to save their family uh, from uh, from from the punishment uh, of God. Right, so really, it's about the individual uh, belief and actions. That's the most important thing.
Yeah, I think, you know, you were talking about the broader experience of faith. And and I think this, you know, this this Ismail versus uh, Ishaq, a son of sacrifice issue, I think it points to a, a greater issue in terms of how we as Muslims interact with the Quranic text. Mm-hmm. Because if we look at a lot of Quranic stories, I mean, uh, the Surah Al-Kaf, for example, you know, it talks about like, well, was it six, was it the five or six? Or we know, mm-hmm. you know, if there is a benefit for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to say that, Ismail explicitly was a son of sacrifice, or Ishaq was a son of sacrifice. It would have been in the Quran. And the point is that what we have in the Quran is there for for a reason. And if there is an ambiguity there, it's also there for a reason. And the problem is we as Muslims that we're getting caught up in a lot of certain minutia of things that that the Quran and the Prophet some did not stress. Whereas, the, whereas you're saying, Yunus, it's the concept, the idea of the sacrifice. It shouldn't matter whether it was Ishaq. It shouldn't matter whether it was Ismail, it was, a, it was a righteous son of Ibrahim that this, and we're learning something from that. Don't get caught up in the, the, the small details. And I think the Quran is, you know, is, is, is full of that. It's not giving us details like, which is obviously very different from, from the biblical accounts, right? The biblical is, is very detailed with numbers and things like that and dates and things like that. But the Quran is, is really speaking to us about a broader, timeless lessons that we need to learn. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful point, Sanim. And even in the story, when you read it, it's almost that you can imagine this dialogue between any father and son, right? Or any father or any parent and child. And I think that's intentional that the story doesn't always bring in all these names, right? Uh, it's really, you know, saying, Qari ya oh my, oh my son, oh my child. So it's almost that you can imagine yourself, you know, talking to your own a child, right? And then uh, the son saying, ya abati, oh my father. Uh, there's other verses in the Quran that speak uh, similar, right? So the, the mother of Musa is not named, but it says, wa ila ummi Musa. Uh, so when I've taught that, that story, people ask, well, what, what was her name, right? right? That's like the first kind of human reaction. Yeah. And my response is similar to what you mentioned, Salim, is that it's intentional that her name is not mentioned, right? Because it's, you want to focus on the fact that she's the mother. Any mother has that feeling, that fear, right, of her child, yeah. right? Their safety of their child uh, would fear and have this concern of putting them into the Nile, right? Uh, worried about them when they didn't know where they were and didn't were unsure if they were safe, right? And then being happy and being in a state of joy when they return back to them, right? So these ambiguities, I think, are intentional. They're part of the literary oh, yeah. aspect of the Quran mm-hmm. that you can kind of sometimes insert yourself, you know, mm-hmm. or insert That's your own story, you know, point, into yeah. in the story. And that fits back to the idea of Hajj when, you, when you're doing the side, right? You can almost imagine yourself yeah. kind of mm-hmm. your story merging with the story of Hajj, right? When you're going to uh, the Jamarat and stoning it, right? You can imagine Ibrahim if he was going on 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 the, on the journey to the sacrifice, you know, throwing those pebbles against uh, Satan or Shaitan, right? So I think that that's really important. That sometimes we uh, we want to make this into some like literary masterpiece, right. yeah. When this is really uh, it's it's an oral text that's speaking about larger theological messages are relevant to believers in general. That's, that's interesting. Uh, it's a great point. I, I never really thought of that, like inserting yourself into the, into the narrative. Into the narrative. And, and obviously in, in Hajj, uh, you're doing that. You're inserting yourself into the, this, literally the footsteps. Like say, like for example, Hajj, right? And I think that also forces you to, to take, to think about 
um, our relationship as as a, as as human beings as a whole, and you know the differences we have, the distinctions, tribal, ethnic, racial, and how that, for example, inserting ourselves into the footsteps of of Haja, right, who comes from like multiple level things of her demographics that a, a lot of times, oftentimes, will um, devalue, right? By inserting yourself into your shoes, we're learning that. Listen, just like when we get in Ihram, we're all like, we just drop, like, drop, it's like a drop of water into an ocean, like in Tawaf, right? You get in Tawaf and it's like this ocean of, of people white, all dressed in white, like just yeah. carrying around. It's like, you know, uh, inserting yourself into that is just brings that that reality that there needs to be the social cohesion. That, ne- that does not need to be these these differences that we have, these very superficial differences, physical differences. It need, needs to all come back to uh, that we're all creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, created to worship him. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. And I felt that when I was at Hajj that, you, you know, everyone's wearing similar clothing. And going back to that earlier point that when you join the crowds, right, you kind of just start blending in, right? And it's not about Eunice anymore, right? It's not about, you know, Muhammad or Ahmed or, you know, or Maryam. It's about you're part of this collective, right? The collective group and that your story, your individual narrative is now merging with these other people, right? Whether it's these historic figures like Hajar Salam or Ibrahim or these, these believers who've come from all over the world uh, and are there sharing that moment with you at that time and at that place. Unfortunately, um, I think we're going to have to cut this short because I, if we start talking about Hajj too much, I'm going to just keep on going on. And if I, I've already talked too much. Some people complain if I talk too much to the podcast, so I'm, I'm going too much. I love Is talking about Is that the feedback Hajj. you get? Yeah, I get, that's why I try not to talk too much on the podcast because people say you talk too much. So, you know, um, but when you start talking about Hajj, I just go on and on. and on. So I apologize, listeners, for my over-enthusiasm here. But I want to thank you, Eunice. You know, if you have any final thoughts for, for everyone, people are hopefully going to be listening to this, you know, in the month of the Hijjah, you know, so any any lasting, um, you know, reflections on people to take uh, um, about, you know, Hajj, Ibrahim, the sacrifice, anything that you w- would like to share? Yeah, no, so just kind of reiterate some of the points that all of us have made that when we're going, you know, we're about to celebrate Eid Adha is to think about the stories, right? Think about some of the stories that we talked about and connecting ourselves with those stories, right? And one of the, the challenges that, you know, Salim, you already mentioned is that how can we be a good parent, right? How could mm. we uh, make sure that our, our, our kids share our values and our principles? And one of the one of the ways to do that is for us to share our stories, right, of faith and of sacrifice with them. So when we share our stories with them, then they connect, that gives them an opportunity for them to connect their story, their life with us. And then on top of that is to have them connect with the stories of the Prophet, right, with the seerah of the Prophet Muhammad. And then when we actually share these stories with them uh, in an explicit way, in an intentional way, that binds them not only to us, but to this spiritual genealogy, right? So that they see themselves not as alone, as as individuals, but as a person within this larger uh, collective. And this gives them this larger understanding of who they are and their place within society. It's a great way to um, to finish off the program. That that was uh, what you're hearing from Yunus Mirza, who is the author of the book of the Bible and the Quran, Biblical Figures in the Islamic Tradition. And Ashad, again, it's great to have you on. And uh, I really hope to see you again. 
Inshallah. You know, I, don't, I don't see him very often, you know. I know, we got we to gotta rectify that situation. <laughs> inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> so uh, to all the listeners, I want to um, thank you for uh, joining us for another program. Um, if you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, please leave a, a review um, and uh, give us your feedback. All that really helps um, get the podcast out to a greater audience. Uh, remember, of course, the most important thing, please um, uh, share with your friends and family, anyone you think might benefit. Until then, uh, Eid Mubarak to all of you out there. Uh, we hope to see you on the next program. Assalamu alaikum, peace be unto you.